Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. And we are delighted to have Andrew Smith with us here today from our section of neurology, our Department of Neurology. Uh, that was a real slip. Neurology used to be part of medicine, but I think it's been at least 12 years. Um, we're going to be really treated to an update in multiple sclerosis. Uh, he'll be introduced to us by Dr. Jeff Cohen, who is a professor of neurology and chairman of the Division of Neurology. He's also one of our trustees on the Board of Trustees for uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health System. So just before saying that, note that to get credit for today's talk is E7ZA. If you text that in to the appropriate place, you will get your credit for today. Um, and there was one um, declared disclosure on uh, Sanofi Genzyme uh, where Dr. Smith is on the advisory board but I've reviewed the slides and do not feel there is any conflict there. So, Jeff, would you come and tell us about your faculty member? So first of all, you should be very kind to Rich Rothstein because he and I endure the chairs meeting every Thursday and it lasts two hours and uh, afterwards we both uh, are cheerful. But anyway, uh, now on to the introductions. Um, you know, as chair, when you hire someone, you think, oh, are they going to work out? Are they okay? And this was one of my best recruitments ever. Um, Dr. Smith is great. He's a wonderful clinician. Those of you that have probably interacted with him realize it. He is our go-to person in the most complicated of complicated cases. He's going to be talking about multiple sclerosis, but also autoimmune encephalitis. He did his neurology residency at Rochester, which has an excellent program. And then he went on and did a fellowship in neuroimmunology, focusing on MS, and also his research in autoimmune encephalitis. And then one final thing I want to say is his name is Andrew, but really we call him Trey. And the reason why we do call him Trey, because that's what he wants us to call him, is he has a fadeaway jumper from uptown. <laughs> the only person who is as good as his three-pointer is Steph Curry. And so we feel very fortunate that Trey is still here with us and not playing NBA. So take it away. Hopefully this is coming through. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Rustin, uh, for inviting me and the rest of the medicine department. And thank you, Dr. Cohen, uh, for the kind introduction. I, I don't know if I was more nervous about giving the talk or Dr. Cohen's uh, <laughs> introduction today, um, but, but thank you very much. Uh, patients frequently ask me when they come to see me why I went into multiple sclerosis. And... I, I can tell them straight up front, it's not because I know I have family or friends, um, which is frequently the case in a lot of uh, people who go into the field. My, I kind of fell into it backwards a little bit, but in a good way. Um, so I actually, like Dr. Cohen mentioned, I'm very interested in autoimmune encephalitis, and that interest grew as a PGY2 um, resident. And my mentors at the University of Rochester, um, Dr. Andrew Goodman, who Dr. Cohen did residency with, um, said, well, if you like this, then you should see what 95% of neuroimmunology is, and that's multiple sclerosis. So I did a few elective rotations in multiple sclerosis, and I really liked it. Some of that may stem from 
back going to back to medical school was I, well, I was one of the medical students who liked every rotation they were on. I was that annoying. Um, and so the reason why is because being a, being a multiple sclerosis specialist is really like being a primary care physician. So we see patients of all ages, you know, going into early adulthood through um, and adolescence and all the way up through, you know, 60s and 70s. And the disease is highly variable, affects patients at, uh, in different ways, in different um, ages of their life. And not only are we dealing with the neurological, you know, multiple different neurological symptoms and the symptom management, but also managing, trying to manage the, the inflammatory disease as well as we can and counsel our patients on a daily basis or on a, on a frequent basis in regards to their symptoms and how to prognosti prognosticate how they're going to do. So I hope instill some of the primary care feel today to, to this group. One of the recent journal, um, journals came out with a, their headline was the best and worst times of clinical decision making in multiple sclerosis. And the, that title is very apt. Um, and the reason why is, is, is best um, noted by um, a quote from editors of the multiple sclerosis and related diseases. So just be, bear with me, because this is actually a pretty good introduction to you know, what I'm going to be talking about. What they said is, now and then it is a good idea to step back from a disease such as multiple sclerosis and ask, do we really understand what is going on? About 50% of papers submitted to this and similar uh, journals start with a confident statement. MS is an inflammatory autoimmune demyelinating disease of the central nervous system thought to be triggered by interaction of genetic and environmental factors. And I could say the exact same thing today. Comforting as the statement may sound, it is mostly dogma. We do not know for sure that it is even a primary disorder of the central nervous system. There is no specific diagnostic test. If only there were a diagnostic, or diagnostic biomarker comparable to aquaporin-4 antibodies that we see in another disease called neuromyelitis optica. We rely on McDonald criteria, which are a bold start, but they're poorly understood, and whether applied in the research or clinical domain. Now we have treatments that appear to work at least for a few years, but none cures the disease, and we have attempted that we have attempted to define. You do not have to know the cause of heart failure to treat effectively, although it helps. So by analogy, there's no a priori reason for concern in MS. Undaunted, we treat MS regularly with immunotherapies whose mode of action is either not understood or conjectural. A unifying theory of how all disease-modifying therapies work would be fantastic. Measurements of disease activity are essential, but their reliability is variable, unknown, or unproven. In essence, we are trying to manage an ill-defined disease whose cause is unknown, using medication of unclear mode of action by assessments that are best crude and influenced by varying degree by input by, from big pharma and dogmatic science. So take that with a grain of salt, because so, it may or may not appear that what I'm presenting is what we absolutely know about this disease, um, but there's a lot of unknown in the disease as well. This is my disclosure. disclosure. So, uh, Jackson, so, so we're going to review the current understanding of pathophysiology of multiple sclerosis and try to appreciate the diagnostic criteria for MS, understand outcome measures in clinical trials in relapsing MS, 
review efficacy of immunotherapies and current treatment approaches. So in outline, like I said, we're going to start talking about the pathophysiology, then moving on to epidemiology and clinical courses, immunotherapies in, in MS, and future potential directions as far as research. So what is MS? Like I said, we think of this being a chronic inflammatory autoimmune or disimmune disease of the central nervous system. It's highlighted by two primary components, uh, uh, inflammatory demyelination as well as neurodegeneration. And there's some evidence to suggest that the inflammatory demyelination is associated with neurodegeneration, but there's also evidence to suggest that neurodegeneration occurs without inflammatory disease activity. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. The degree of demyelination and neurodegeneration is highly variable across different disease states. It's also highly variable between patients who have the same disease state. It's, like I said, clinically and radiologically, it's extremely heterogeneous disease. So, for example, I have patients with MS who are in their 40s and 50s who are actively hiking, you know, 4,000-foot peaks in the area. I have patients in their 20s who are in wheelchairs. So that's the, the breadth of the diversity of the, the patients that I see. The hallmark as far as patient present, presentations are clinical relapses which are defined in, of, by symptoms and examination findings consistent with areas of injury, or like we say in neurology, localization to the central nervous system. These relapses are typically subacute onset, so not acute onset in, in comparison to a stroke, and frequently with gradual recovery. So to start off in talking about the inflammatory demyelinating process, this process is likely mediated by T, B and T cells. Once thought to be primarily a T cell mediated disease, there's more and more research actually suggesting that B cells are also involved. And what happens is, for some un unclear reason at this point in time, you get uh, migration of lymphocytes across the blood-brain barrier, production of inflammatory cytokines and immunoglobulins, which activate microphage-driven um, phagocytosis of, of myelin. There's two possible theories for why this is happening, at least at this point in time, the outside-in theory and the inside-out theory. The outside-in theory means that, um, or the idea is that something in the peripheral uh, in, the, in the body is triggering the immune system to, to cross over into the brain uh, so lymphocyte and, and drives the demyelinating process. The inside-out theory is that um, something is inherently wrong with the central nervous system, meaning that uh, there's something wrong with the myelin, potentially, that activates um, uh, the, the immune system to, to attack it. And that's uncertain. And like I said, there's uh, immune cell trafficking across the blood-brain barrier. You get CD8 and CD, uh, CD8 uh, T cell activation to more pathogenic forms of Th1 and Th17. Production of pro-inflammatory cytokines and macrophage-driven myelin phagocytosis. 
regards to pathophysiology and looking at MRI scans, this is quite a bit of lesion heterogeneity. So there are active lesions. That's active, active lesions meaning active inflammation. And an MRI scan that is pointed out by enhancing, contrast enhancing lesions on MRI scan. And the activity or the contrast enhancement can last for weeks to months. And in one patient, I've actually seen the contrast enhancement last for over a year. And, and followed by quiescence. And the quiescence is in either into an, an active remyelinating state. So uh, following the inflammatory process, there is evidence of remyelination of the axons, but frequently that remyelination is incomplete. And in addition, there's evidence of underlying axonal injury. And then there's inactive lesions, so where there's no clear evidence of inflammatory process going on, and inactive smoldering disease, or inactive smoldering lesions, meaning that there's no contrast enhancement, but on pathology you can see um, microglial activation and, and production of cytokines, meaning to think that there's still um, an inflammatory process. The lesions are, are primarily in the white matter, as we expect from a, a demyelinating disease. Um, but more and more research is actually showing that with, with improved techniques on MRI scan, which is shown over here, if I can reach over there, um, that, that we actually see uh, lesions within the gray matter, within the cortex as well. So we may only be capturing the tip of the iceberg as far as lesion accumulation in patients with MS. The characteristic findings on MRI scan are these T2 hyperintense lesions. You can see here. And harken back to neurology and, and, and medical school. These are called Dawson's fingers. They're perivenular um, T2 hyperintense lesions that are perpendicular to the uh, lateral ventricles. In addition to that, um, older lesions, so you develop T1 hypointense um, lesions or that are seen over here. I can't point to over there as far, um, but determined as black holes. So that's a more chronic process. In addition to these um, inflammatory lesions, we also see varying degrees of brain atrophy. This is actually seen in the earliest stages of the disease. So once thought that the brain atrophy is more of a, along the lines of patients with you know, more progressive forms of the disease, actually if you look at patients with the early stages of the disease, like even radiologically isolated syndrome, which I talk about in clinically isolated syndrome and early relapsing MS, if you compare the brain volume to healthy age-matched healthy controls, there's already evidence of brain atrophy early in the disease. And there's no clear association necessarily with lesion burden, number of T2 hyperintense lesions with brain atrophy. And the disability associated with MS seems to correlate much better with brain atrophy than necessarily with lesion burden. So, like I said, this is the neurodegeneration is a primary driver of disability accumulation, or at least it seems to be at this point in time. And it's really present in all phases of, of MS, but it does differ by disease status, which I'll talk about a little bit later. It's thought to be secondary to multiple different things. Um, and some of the evidence for this is, is more clear, and some of it is like we think this is probably what's happening. 
So it's the chronic presence of pro-inflammatory cytokines in reactive oxygen species, which may be due to um, a microglial activation and persistent microglial activation, aberrant complement activation, uh, cortical lesion accumulation, uh, impaired mitochondrial function, impaired remyelination, and neuronal apoptosis. So now I'm going to move on and talk a little bit more about the epidemiology and different uh, clinical courses. So the, the prevalence of multiple sclerosis is, is not low. This is not a rare disease. Um, so as far as prevalence in, in person years, uh, it's probably 2.5 to 1,000. Um, the, the data for prevalence and incidence in multiple sclerosis is relatively limited because we don't have a large inventory of patients or um, to, to track um, how frequently the diagnosis is being made, especially here in the United States. So most of our, our data as far as epidemiology and frequency of the disease actually comes from Sweden and the UK. The mean age of diagnosis is between the ages of uh, 30 and 34, and women are, by and way, more frequently infected than men at a ratio of about 3 to 1. And in fact, the, the incidence or prevalence of the, of the disease is actually increasing over the last 20 years, as shown over here in this graph. And, for unclear, and that's for unclear reasons. And in fact, not only is, is that the case, but the, the ratio, the, the women uh, to men ratio, is also increasing, and that's not understood either. There are many different uh, associations as far as uh, epidemiology and potential causes, but no cause is found. So in regards to genetics, there have been over 100 associated genetic mutations. Um, some of the genetic mutations are more highly associated with the disease than, than other, and some of them may help predict uh, disease severity. As far as latitude, there seems to be increased incident, there is increased incidence of at higher latitudes. Um, the reason why that is is not understood. Um, some of that may be related to vitamin D levels. So more northern latitudes, typically vitamin D levels are lower. Um, but, but that is not clear. Like I said, vitamin D, more commonly uh, patients with MS are vitamin D deficient. And why, is that, why that is may be related to location, but it may also be related to genetic predisposition for having lower vitamin D levels as well. Many different viruses have been implicated in the disease. Um, my mentor at the University of Rochester, Dr. Goodman, say every decade is a different virus that seems to be implicated in the disease. So HSV-6 or HHV-6 that's been implicated, HSV, and, and now we're more in the decade, actually two decades, of looking at Epstein-Barr virus. So there, does, there is association with Epstein virus um, exposure. So 99% of patients with MS um, have been exposed to Epstein Barr virus, and 95%, but 95% of the general population has. So while that's statistically, that seems to be association. Clinically, that's not that helpful. What may be more helpful is actually prior um, infectious mononucleosis. So, or Epstein Barr virus infection in adolescence and early adulthood whereas there does seem to be a positive association with the development of MS and potentially increase the risk up to like five times over the, the baseline 
of the population risk. Interestingly, in a study by um, Dr. Wobant and, and other researchers at the University of California in San Francisco looked at whether or not EBV exposure in children, so younger in childhood, is associated with MS. And interestingly, there does not seem to be the same type of association if, if uh, younger kids are exposed to EBV. There's more data coming out about human endogenous retroviruses, so viruses that have been encoded um, or been, but been included into our own genetic material. So looking at within MS lesions, there seems to be um, production of human endogenous retrovirus proteins, as well as evidence of, uh, let's say, um, transcription um, of the nucleic acids within the spinal fluid. It's actually an ongoing uh, phase two clinical trial um, of a monoclonal antibody against um, human endogenous retrovirus protein. Progressive clinical courses um, can be broken down a little bit more simply into um, how, the, how most patients present. So either relapsing MS or primary progressive MS. Within relapsing MS, um, there is a condition called radiologically isolated syndrome in which patients have an MRI scan done for a completely different reason, so headaches, for example, not clearly associated with an underlying um, you know, neurological deficit, per se, or, or um, disability outside of the headache. Um, and what they see, what you see is findings on MRI scan that look like MS. It's not turned MS, and actually relatively few number of these patients who have radiologically isolated syndrome go on to develop clinically definite relapsing MS. And it's clinically isolated syndrome, um, which is a patient who has one attack, um, but does not fulfill the criteria for um, clinically definite relapsing MS. A larger portion of these patients will go on to develop clinically definite relapsing MS. And then within the relapsing family, but also kind of on its own, is secondary progressive MS, in which patients who initially have relapsing MS go on to develop more of a progressive disease course um, that's more defined by the disease progression than by relapses. And then primary progressive MS. So I'll talk about those a little bit more. 85% of all patients who present with MS have relapsing MS. 10% of those patients have what's termed term benign course of MS, in which they have relatively little lesion accumulation over time and, and very minimal disability, if any disability. So 50% of all patients with relapsing MS typically convert, and I, I use that term convert, uh, to secondary progressive uh, 10 to 15 years following diagnosis. Patients often ask me, if they've had relapsing MS, if, they have, if they're having new symptoms, does that mean I have secondary progressive MS, meaning that this is a black and white clinical transition? Like I said, there, 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 there's evidence of neurodegeneration early in the course of the disease, so it's not as clear that something different is changing. And maybe the same process that has been underlying the disease, the inflammatory disease, that patients can either one either enhances, so increases the neurodegeneration at that point in time, or patients can no longer compensate for that neurodegeneration. 
50% of patients present with uh, primary progressive MS. Interestingly, the, the men to, or male to female ratio is more equal in primary progressive MS. The reason why that is not clear, typically the onset is, is older um, than in relapsing MS, so the typical presentation is in the early to mid-40s. And as far as associations with risk of secondary progressive MS, so I'm clear at this time whether lesion burden is an association with secondary progressive MS. What seems to be more of an association is actually uh, cerebral and spinal cord atrophy that, occur, that is occurring already in the relapsing phase of the disease. Poor recovery from prior relapses also frequently uh, may be associated with, uh, with development of secondary progressive MS. This is a diagram of looking at how these uh, clinical courses um, look on, on a graph. So uh, y-axis to defining disability, degree of disability, and the x-axis uh, time. So you can see in patients with relapsing MS, these orange bars are, are episodes of relapses. And patients have new onset of symptoms. The symptoms uh, frequently last uh, the mid-year um, to, to severity of their symptoms is within three to seven days. Um, some stabilization of, the, of, of that relapse. And then frequently, especially early in the disease course, almost complete recovery back to their baseline. As patients develop more relapses, um, their disability, their baseline disability frequently increases over time. In patients with secondary progressive MS, um, they have, the disease is you know, preceded by, by a relapsing phase and then followed by a pro more progressive disease with infrequent or less frequent relapses. In patients with primary progressive MS, there's an underlying primary neurodegenerative disease with very few relapses or new lesions on, on MRI scan. So another diagram looking at, at the same type of thing, so, uh, but more of a progressive component of the disease and new terminology defining activity of the disease and progression of the disease. So activity in the disease, meaning new lesions on MRI scan, new inflammatory disease or clinical relapses, and disease progression, noting worsening uh, disability over time and that, you know, without um, clearly being related to relapses. Again, this is, is showing a diagram of, of a course of patient who has relapsing MS. So you can see early on the disease course, frequent relapses, and in, in red, looking at uh, brain volume. So early in disease course, there is already some evidence of loss of brain, at so of brain atrophy that, that worsens over time. And at a period of time when brain atrophy, at some point in time, brain atrophy, um, and when relapses start to decrease, we see disability progression in the absence of, of clinical attacks that, again, is more associated with brain atrophy than with the relapses. There are new diagnostic criteria for making the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis that came out um, earlier this year. 
the, the key is two clinical attacks with greater than or equal to two um, lesions on MRI scan, objective clinical evidence of a disease that's affecting the central nervous system. After that, no additional information is needed. And I'll talk a little bit about, about the clinical, typical clinical relapses. Um, the biggest change um, has been in this criteria is that the diagnosis can be made now after just one clinical attack. The, the you know, obvious kind of rationale for doing this is trying to make the di diagnosis earlier and try to start patients on therapies to reduce the risk of future relapses and associated disability. So if a patient has one clinical attack and they have evidence of dissemination in time or space, what we mean by that is um, contrast-enhancing lesions so, um, and non-contrast-enhancing lesions. So that gives us evidence of old lesions and new lesions, dissemination in time, or as well as dissemination in space. Or now what has been added in is the presence of oligoclonal bands, which are seen in over 95% of patients with multiple sclerosis. Primary progressive MS um, is diagnosed in patients who have at least one year of uh, disability progression, either prospectively or retrospectively, and then two of the following. So two or more lesions um, characteristic of MS um, in the following brain regions, so periventricular, cortical, juxtacortical, or infratentorial. Um, two or more lesions in the spinal cord or the presence of oligoclonal bands. Typical uh, presentations um, of, of relapses in patients with MS include optic neuritis, so loss of vision in one or both eyes, that's so frequently associated with a scotoma or, or visual field deficits that most commonly is central, um, decreased uh, red color perception, or we call it red desaturation, and it can be associated with uh, pain uh, behind the eye that's worse with eye movements, but that varies depending on where the lesion is in the optic nerve. Double vision or diplopia is frequently also seen, and multiple different cranial nerves, so cranial three, four, or six, or also something called the intranuclear ophthalmoplegia or lesion within the medial longitudinal fasciculus. Ataxia and vertigo. Um, a transverse myelitis, so hemibody numbness or weakness or paraplegia. The mean annual relapse, we gather this primarily from clinical trial data, um, but the, the relapse rate is highly variable amongst the clinical trials. Uh, but so an estimate is maybe about 1 to 1.2, and that's, that rate is more seen in, early in the disease course. The onset of these symptoms is subacute. So if a patient presents with acute onset of symptoms, so like that, the more likely that that's uh, another vascular problem like, or another neurological problem like stroke. Because um, these symptoms typically come over the course of hours or days, or it may be difficult in the patients who wake up in the morning. But again, uh, like I said, the, the, the um, patient population between the two groups is a little bit different. So younger patients, more likely MS, um, versus older patients, the, the concern should be more along with stroke. The nadir to um, symptom severity is between one and two weeks. 
in regards to remission or recovery from relapses um, typically takes weeks or months and can be either full, especially um, early in the disease course, or partial recovery. There are also radiological relapses where patients um, have new lesions on MRI scan without having um, symptoms. And in fact, 70% of brain lesions, or lesions in the cerebral hemispheres, do not necessarily cause the patient to have specific symptoms. So I frequently, in monitoring disease activity, even in a patient who is asymptomatic, will obtain an MRI scan of the brain on a relatively frequent basis, once or twice a year, early in the disease course to try to capture disease activity. There are also pseudo exacerbations, or we call Uthoff's phenomenon, or which is um, worsening of current or old MS symptoms. It is frequently seen in the setting of fever, um, infection, even infection without fever, and fatigue and stress. So when I when a patient calls in and says I am having worsening symptoms, my frequent questions are, especially if I don't know the patient yet, um, is if they've ever had those symptoms before. And if they have other symptoms that may suggest an underlying um, infection, uh, frequently patients with with multiple sclerosis have uh, urinary issues, urinary retention, and increase the risk of having urinary tract infections. So, a patient with a history of, of urinary symptoms and UTIs, I frequently check for um, a UTI prior to assuming that this is automatically a relapse. I'll talk a little bit more about um, how we treat relapses a little bit later. MS can cause a disability across multiple different areas. So vision can be impaired, as talked about, cranial nerve deficits, uh, cerebellar findings, whether it be ataxia, dysmetria, affecting gait or coordination, um, weakness on the upper and lower extremities, sensory deficits, um, cognition is actually um, under-recognized, one, because it's really hard to assess this in a routine clinical setting. Um, but in fact, 40 to 65% of patients with MS have cognitive, some form of cognitive impairment. Bowel and bladder symptoms are common, most commonly, and as far as bowel symptoms or constipation, and bladder symptoms, it can be a combination of urinary urgency, and, and urinary retention. And of course, um, the combination of having sensory deficits, motor deficits, cerebellar deficits can have a significant impact on gait. But even outside of that, um, outside of those uh, alone, MS uh, seems to reduce gait, um, and endurance, and speed. The common practice of assessing disability in patients with MS is something called the Kurtzky Expanded Disability Status Scale, with a scale of 0 to 10, with 0 being no disability and 10 being death. It is highly skewed towards um, ambulatory deficits. So early in the disease, or, or in, at lower um, scores of so 0 to 4, um, is primarily related to um, motor symptoms, uh, vision, uh, other, other deficits, and then after 4, so 4.5 and above, it's far skewed towards ambulation, um, so, and, and less related to the, the other, um, uh, other deficits that are seen in, in multiple sclerosis. So uh, EDSS of 
6.0, patients are start using um, assistance with walking, so a cane 6.5 is um, bilateral assist, and 7 is primarily restricted to a wheelchair. So in regards to occurrence uh, of relapses in the disease as well as disability related to to relapses, um, what this graph is showing is Onset, so in, in bars, the color of the bars is the onset of the disease, so under 20, and um, so 20 to 30, 30 to 40, and 40 and above. And uh, the bar graphs uh, give us an annualized relapse rate based on the age of the patient. And what this is showing that vast majority, more relapses, not vast majority, but more relapses occur early in the disease. Um, and as a disease, as the patients get older, the, the risk of relapses seem to, dis- de- um, to seem to decrease. The, ra- the reason for that is, is not completely understand, um, or not completely understood. In addition to that, a study by uh, Dr. Loveland um, et al. showed that the relapses are, are associated with disability accumulation. So 42.4% of, of all relapses result in an increase in the EDSS of, a, of at least 0.5. So not even though patients may recover, overall uh, relapses do, um, do relate to per, you know, disease progression in regards to disability. And in fact, 28% of those result in EDSS of greater than one. So there is rationale for treating, uh, reducing the risk of relapses. And this will co- I'll come back to that a little bit later when I talk about therapies. This study by Roxburgh all looking at a large number of patients in regards to disease severity and, and time uh, or in disease duration and, and putting in a deciles for disease severity. So along the x-axis here, we have EDSS and the time uh, or the disease duration. So if you have an EDSS of two early in the disease course in the first year, it already puts you in the sixth decile for disease severity. And you follow that over time, it helps try to prognosticate how patients may do over time. So there's higher risk uh, of developing you know, need for bilateral assist if you're, if, you're, if you're in the sixth decile early in the course of the disease. The one caveat to this is that this study was done, you know, published back in 2005, and that's prior to a lot of the more potent disease-modifying therapies. That being said, we do not have a firm grasp of whether or not our more potent immunotherapies dramatically change this at this point in time. In regards to the natural history of primary progressive MS, so this is looking at proportion of patients on the y-axis and time to an EDSS of four, or when they start having difficulties with walking, and then time to um, EDSS of six, so they're using uh, unilateral assist, and then time to being restricted to a wheelchair. And what this is showing is the age of onset seems to have a major impact on 
the, the rate of disease progression in primary progressive MS. So age onset of greater than 45 years seems to have a more rapid um, clinical disease progression and then patients who are, who are younger at disease onset. I'm going to talk, move over to a little bit to the immunotherapies. So currently, there are 13 FDA-approved treatments for MS. A couple months ago, I could have said 14, uh, but one was withdrawn from the market. Um, so we made huge progress in this. So the first uh, treatment for relapsing MS um, came out in 93, and that was beta seron. Um, and then, so we've had a rapid expansion of a number of treatments. Um, over the last 20 plus years. And now we currently have one treatment for, for primary progressive MS. And that was as of um, about a year and a half ago. In relapsing MS, the primary outcome measure in, is annualized relapse rate, so frequency of, of relapses. Secondary outcome measures are frequently GAD-enhancing lesions or number of new uh, T2 lesions and also frequently look at disease progression throws. So primarily in uh, progressive forms of the disease, we look at disease progression as a, as a primary outcome measure. So what's the role of, immuno, uh, of uh, MS therapies? One of the questions I frequently get from, from primary care doctors is, my patient is having all these symptoms, you know, why aren't we changing therapies? So the role of the therapies is to reduce the risk of future relapses, and they don't necessarily do anything for their current symptoms that they've had secondary to prior um, injury from, from the relapses or related to neurodegeneration. So, so, and their highest utility is likely early in the disease, so when patients are more likely to have um, relapses. There's actually a study going on right now um, trying to figure out how effective medications are later in the disease process. So um, there's a study um, that's looking at patients who are over the age of 55 who have not had any new lesions or relapses in the last five years and randomizing them to either staying on therapies or discontinuing therapies. And so that will hopefully shed some light on treatment of the disease as patients get, uh, patients get older and when they're less likely to have relapses. Current MS therapies, I'm not going to talk about all of them, but kind of, kind of want to just put out some names so, so you'll know what they are when you see them. Um, so injectable therapies, so we have several variations of interferons. Um, as well as glutarium or acetate or colpaxone. We have three different um, oral therapies at this point in time, fingolimod, dimethylfumarate, um, terflunamod, or, yeah, and, and we currently have three different monoclonal infusion uh, therapies, so natalizumab, um, alimtuzumab, and um, ocrelizumab, and the dates behind these are when they were FDA approved. There's also uh, FDA-approved treatment for secondary progressive MS and, and mitoxantrone, although that is infrequently used due to significant cardiotoxicity. 
to the location of where we think these medications are working. Like I said, and like this quote says, we don't really have a great concept of how these medications are, are effective in, in MS. So in the more peripheral, most of our medications, we, we have hypothesized that they work more in the periphery. So alentuzumab, anti-CD52, um, which depletes both B and T cells, um, more also known in the hematology oncology world as, as CAMPATH, we are now using for, for patients with um, relapsing forms of multiple sclerosis. Um, Diclizumab is a medication that was removed from the market, um, was recently due to uh, concerns about liver toxicity. Um, dimethylfumarate, um, all these medications we think work more on the periphery. In regards to other medications, so natalizumab, one of our infusion medications, is a, um, a monoclonal antibody to integrin-4, and, and what it does is uh, blocks uh, migration of lymphocytes across the blood-brain barrier. Um, ocrelizumab, which was disapproved last year, is a, an, a humanized anti-CD20, so relative to rituximab. Uh, I thought this was a good uh, figure to, to show the efficacy of, uh, of these medications. It's really hard to compare medications um, in, in the field of multiple sclerosis because many of the medications are not compared head-to-head. Um, so, but this was a study trying to attempt that, and, and through different statistical um, analysis, um, they were able to, to come give some guidelines or some idea of how effective these medications are in comparison to each other. So our, our more potent medications are listed here on the uh, top, and this is you know, relative risk of, of relapses in relation to these medications. So at best, our, our medications you know, reduce relapses by about 70%. So we're not near you know, reduction of relapses 100% or cure for relapsing MS. And, and then moving down to the interferons and copaxone, we're looking at more along the lines of a, a relapse rate reduction of about you know, 30%. So there's three different approaches to relapsing MS. And it varies by the neurologist, and it varies amongst even MS specialists. So the, the, the idea is, one, there's escalation, um, induction, and then a more patient-specific type of approach. The concept behind escalation is we start with the lowest risk uh, medications because we have very poor ability to prognosticate how patients are going to do over time. So the idea is we'll start with the safest medications, and if patients have relapses, then we'll gradually move up to more what we consider to be more potent therapies. Induction, there are some patients in the field or doctors in the field um, who think that induction is a more appropriate um, path. So meaning that, you know, looking back at uh, relapse rates are more frequent early in the disease. So we should be more aggressive early on in the disease course to reduce the risk of relapses um, because that's when patients are more likely to develop, um, potentially develop you know, disabilities secondary to those relapses. The, the, the difficulty with this approach is that there are a large patient, proportion of patients who may be clinically stable for over the most of, of their course of the, the disease. 
And so you might, might risk over-treatment uh, of MS. And then there's more patient-specific uh, type of approach. So using the best prognostication factors um, for each patient to try to choose um, the right route. So, um, so for example, there are, you know patient who presents with numerous relapses in the first few years of the disease, who has a large lesion burden, so more than 10 lesions on MRI scan at presentation. Uh, and most recently, we thought that lesions on the spinal cord also uh, may herald uh, worse disease prognosis. Um, treating those patients more aggressively early on in the disease course, and patients then who have fewer lesion burden, no evidence of brain atrophy, fewer relapses or time between relapses, um, and treating those patients less aggressively. And also acknowledging that concerns may have, patients may have concerns for their different treatments. So um, my, my job, I tell my patients, is, is that this is, it's a, this is a treatment team. Um, patients with MS are, are very anxious about their disease. We're talking about a disease that um, has a lot of unpredictability associated with it. So my job is to counsel patients on, on, the, the, on their disease, the, with the best evidence that we have for prognosticating their future to try to determine what medication um, they should be on. But at the end of the day, I tell my patients, I never want to put you on a medication that makes you even more anxious than the disease makes you anxious. So I try to marry um, the, 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 you know, how patients are approaching the disease with their disease as, as best I can. And sometimes it is imperfect. But I'd rather have a patient on a medication than not on a medication because they're scared. This is showing a graph, unfortunately, it's not coming out too, too well, but uh, different treatment approaches, uh, kind of highlighting what I just said. So, um, and this was, uh, this was a publication by Dr. Wingerchuk at the Mayo Clinic, uh, kind of highlighting these different approaches. So patients with more mild or moderate um, active MS, you know, considering these therapies initially, and then um, you know, incorporate patient-specific factors to select or switch to a disease-modifying therapy, monitoring patients clinically for relapses as well as MRI scan, and if patient has failures, then evidence of more highly active disease, then switching over to this more aggressive MS disease um, flowchart, where you're changing, switching over to um, you know, and some of this is also is, is based on their JC virus antibody status, so uh, John Cunningham virus antibody status. And then the rationale for this is, is because of the risk of progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy um, that has been more associated with um, one of our infusion therapies called natalizumab, where the risk um, can be as low as about 1 in 10,000 in patients who are JC virus antibody negative and as high as 1 in 100 to 1 in 300 um, in patients who are JC virus antibody positive who have been on Tisabri for more than two years and have history of exposure to prior immunosuppressant therapies. So uh, we've tracked the JC virus antibody status, more so in patients with, who are on natalizumab, but also this is kind of a decision-making um, process. So if a J patient is JC virus antibody negative, you're more likely to consider a treatment with natalizumab versus if they're JC virus antibody positive, more likely to 
to choose alternative therapies like alentuzumab, uh, fingolimod, or other um, considered to be, or ocalizumab now um, in, in regards to the treatment. How do we determine whether or not um, we need to escalate or the disease is uh, worsening? There's something called the modified Rio score um, that was developed um, in retrospect of looking at uh, uh, a clinical trial in patients who are in interferon beta. And what they saw is clinical features and radiological features um, in patients who seem to get worse over that year of treatment. So the highest risk of patients getting worse are patients who had five new lesions on MRI scan in more than two relapses. So we sometimes use this uh, to help guide whether or not a patient should, should be escalated. There's also a, cons- uh, a term called NIDA, or no evidence of disease activity. Um, it's, it's hallmarked by three different, four different things now, so NIDA four. So no new lesions, no new T2 lesions or enhancing lesions, no relapses no disease progression, and no brain atrophy. At this point in time, this is a moonshot. <laughs> we're, we're not there. And so to use this in clinical decision-making is not practical. With regards to treatment of pro- more progressive forms of, of MS, like I said, mitoxantron was, was FDA approved many years ago, but um, I've never used it, and I've never seen it used. Um, I, I've seen in patients who have been on in the past um, but, but apparently that's related to underlying cardiotoxicity. So patients can only be on the therapy for more than two years. They have to have frequent echocardiograms to look at left ventricular ejection fraction. It's not really used uh, frequently anymore. Um, ocrelizumab is recently FDA approved for both relapsing and primary progressive MS. It's a humanized monoclonal anti-C20 antibody, so it is a relative of rituximab. In the phase three clinical trial in primary patients with primary progressive MS, what they found was uh, the primary outcome measure was confirmed disability progression at three months. And what they saw is that if patients were on placebo, the subjects were on placebo, 39% of those patients got, had confirmed disability progression over the two years versus 32% who are on ocrelizumab. Statistically significant, um, but but certainly lacking, you know, in in ideal treatment for for, for primary progressive MS. Um, the average age of, the, of these patients was on the younger side, so 44, and 33, you know, 30% uh, of these patients had GAN-enhancing lesions at enrollment. And um, the reason to point this out is that we know um, that ocrelizumab reduces new lesion formation by about 90%. And like I told you, new lesion formation and relapses are associated with disability. Um, so it, it's unclear at this point in time how much of the disability uh, progression reduction is, is related to reducing new lesions on MRI scan versus the underlying neurodegenerative disease alone without new lesion formation. In regards to treatment of MS relapses, um, our data is primarily related to the optic neuritis treatment trial that began a long time ago and it actually continues to follow patients over time. Um, the role for, uh, for high-dose, uh, primarily methylprednisolone um, or high-dose oral prednisone is in speed of recovery. And so what they looked at is primarily in, in visual uh, field deficits. 
And this black line here is, is, is recovery um, with treatment with high-dose IV steroids. What they saw is, is really the big difference is in the rate of recovery with relatively limited uh, benefit in, in looking at uh, no outcomes at six months down the road, whether or not giving steroids. Um, there have also been studies looking at oral prednisone, um, like 1,000 milligrams daily, uh, or daily for three to five days versus IV steroids. Seem to be relatively about the same efficacy. Um, PO is harder to tolerate for patients, secondary to GI symptoms. There is some data to suggest that uh, a role for plasma exchange in primarily in patients who have not responded to IV steroids, although the data here is, is not overpowering. Uh, the, IV, the data for IVIG in, in um, relapses is, is less um, prevalent. So my backup typically in a patient who has a terrible, terrible relapse, primarily with gait difficulties or significant cognitive difficulties if they haven't responded to steroids, than trying plasma exchange. So future directions, there's ongoing research. There's a lot of research in multiple sclerosis, which is great. Um, it, give, it provides some hope for our patients with MS um, in multiple different areas. Like I said, our understanding of the disease is, is limited. So ongoing research in novel relapse-reducing immunotherapies. And one of those uh, topics is autologous hematopoietic stem cell therapies. There have been phase one and in, in, you know, early phase studies, um, not necessarily, yeah, early phase studies looking at uh, autologous hematopoietic stem cells, which suggests that there, there may be a, a role for this treatment in, in patients with um, more aggressive forms of relapsing MS. Um, there's talk about doing a larger phase three study, but, but nothing has, has yet to come to fruition. And the real question behind this is, is it the induction? So is it the immunosuppression related to the stem cell therapy? Or is it the combination of the induction and the, and, and the, um, uh, and the bone marrow? Um, by, or, yeah, um, I would say, and the stem cell therapy alone. So that, that's, and there's certainly a lot of safety concerns related to this approach. Regards recovery, so um, it's ongoing looking at remyelination um, and with different uh, uh, molecules as well as you know, potentially looking at oligodendrocyte precursor cells, um, whether or not they can promote remyelination in patients. There's ongoing um, efforts at looking at different rehabilitation methods and, and recovery. Um, and then other stem cell therapies, including uh, mesenchymal stem cell therapies, um, as well as human oligoclonal uh, precursor cell transplants, actually, actually putting um, oligodendrocyte precursor cells, embryonic stem cells, into the brain and patients to see if that will recover remyelination. In progressive mass, even more research is going in here. So primarily looking at targeting neurodegeneration. Um, an interesting compound um, is ibutilast. This is one of many different um, compounds that, that have a lot of interest going into them. They did a study uh, several years ago looking at whether or not this, this compound had a reduction in relapse rate in patients with MS, but it did not. But in, in, uh, 
In secondary outcome measure analysis, they saw that it actually reduced brain atrophy. There was um, a phase two study in, primary prog- in more progressive patients with MS that did show that it reduced brain atrophy by about 40%, 48%. The data has not yet been published. Um, so we'll see what the actual data looks like. They announced this over a year ago, and we're still waiting for the paper to come out. And then one of the targets here is looking at microglia activation and reduction in inflammatory cytokine activation. Many biomarkers um, are, are needed, so MRI scans are helpful in, in relapsing MS, but we have really poor ability to prognosticate how patients are going to do, especially early in the disease course, which comes to, um, which makes it challenging in choosing the right immunotherapy for our patients. And like I said, there's there, um, disease progression and brain atrophy are variable in progressive forms of MS, and they're very slow, which makes doing early-stage studies and trying to screen therapies that could help um, more challenging. So there has been more effort looking at CSF biomarkers, where those can be changed by different therapies, and looking at microglia activation and and PET uh, translocator protein um, ligand, which may be a a biomarker of uh, microglial activation patients with progressive MS. So we're a little bit over here, um, but, but in summary, so the pathology of MS involves both the adaptive and innate immune system, like we, we think. Um, there's certainly evidence for that, and it's an inflammatory as well as neurodegenerative disease. The diagnosis of MS is based on both clinical presentation as well as um, additional um, MRI scan and CSF findings. Relapsing MS therapies reduce the risk of future relapses, um, but the approach to treating patients um, with relapsed MS is variable, and there are many different directions uh, for ongoing future uh, for ongoing research, including um, relapsing MS, um, rehabilitation, recovery um, from MS relapses, and slowing or stopping neurodegeneration. That's thanks. Given the time, I know some people have to run off to clinic and other things. Why don't we expect you to come down and talk to Trey then about questions you have? That was a magnificent tour de force around MS, and we really appreciate right. what you have told us. All right, thank, thank you. you very much. That was great.